Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Maybe some of you have had a mouse make it into the house or the garage or running around in the backyard. We see mice, you know, mice are not uncommon. But let me read you the first couple paragraphs of a story that was in the Hamilton Spectator today. When neighbors Amanda Paulington and Helen Wall sit on their front porches to sip their morning coffee, they can commiserate with each other about rats scurrying through their homes. Not mice, rats. I had 18 that I killed in less than a week, Paulington says. They actually made a nest in my stove. They can get pretty big, Wall adds, so much so that Maggie... Her old cat won't take them on. Uh, These people live in the Keith neighborhood of Hamilton. I don't recall this city having a giant rat problem before. What is all of a sudden going on that is bringing the rats out, turning us into New York City North? Uh, Jim Miner is president of Action Pest Control. He's been involved in this. Jim, how are you today? Very good, Scott. Thank you. And you? Uh, I, well, I don't have any rats running through the studio, so so far so good. It's a good day, I guess, by that account. What's going on? Where? Why are we all of a sudden seemingly overrun by rats in some parts of town? Um, I was just listening to you talk. So if you went back about 10 years ago, the city of Hamilton actually, on Garth Street and West 5th, they were digging up roads to put in sewers, and they had a huge infestation in people's yards of Norway rats. And there was big complaints to the city and the city hired exterminators to come in and deal with it. Wherever you've got builders, developers, anybody excavating, rats live in the sewers or underground. They start moving about. And unfortunately that's what's happened in the Keith neighborhood, we believe. What's the, what is the thing that's being dug up or whatever there that would have opened the open the the door for them? Um, well, they've had a problem for a bit. I'm, uh, I've known Don McVicker, I'm going to date myself, for almost 40 years. He's a very close friend, and um, he's been ministering to people in the neighborhood, part of inner city outreach ministry, and he's asked me in the past, people that live in the Wentworth, Burlington Street area, had some rats, and, you know, the, maybe there wasn't a lot of, family income and we said we'll do what we can to rectify it but i think what's happened and i think the counselor i believe uh counselor nan was aware of this he tore the studebaker plant down which is in marsh street um trying to think of the cross street just near wentworth and wentworth and burlington street when that came down um i don't live there but people have been telling me in the last couple of weeks the rats started migrating across the road onto mars street and into francis and uh douglas and other surrounding streets and to be honest what happened um don mcvickers he's the founder of the eva rothwell center on wentworth street north and he has a ministry they run which is called inner city outreach ministry and some people had approached him talking about it and unfortunately they didn't have a lot of extra resources to pay for it so don asked if i could do something mm. which we did and when we started investigating scott the problem was a lot worse than they had realized a lot of people don't like to talk about these things 
Well, how fa- how fast, Jim? So so when this happens, uh, I'm as I say, there there will be mice in my pool filter every once in a while, whatever. They're everywhere. We know they can breed like crazy and expand quickly. How, do rats do the same? Once once they've come out of the underground, do they replicate and then spread really quickly and really fast? Um, in ideal conditions, the female Norway or roof rat, these are Norway rats, will we'll say between 60 and 70 offspring a year from one female. So, yes, they produce quite uh, readily. And it's not just the north end. I, I didn't want to jump on your bandwagon. I live in the West Mountain of the Meadowlands, and I battled rats for a few years, and we get the odd one in our swimming pool as well. So it's not just the north end. It's all over the city. Um Okay, so one of the other things is when these people were talking to the paper, they were saying that they were getting into the house. Once again, I'm using mice as the example because I'm more familiar, but a mouse can get through anywhere. You don't have to have hardly any space and a mouse can make it in. Does a rat work the same way? Does it need much space or can it get through a tiny, tiny space to get into your house? Uh, It needs a bit bigger than a mouse. A mouse basically has soft cartilage, we'll say under the fur, so it can flatten out. A rat does similar, but they do need a bigger hole. These are very old pre-wartime houses. Um, You know, they're older homes. Some of them are in disrepair. They're coming up through the sewer grates in the floor. The newer houses don't have this problem. They're coming through the sewers. They're coming through cracks in the foundation. But we found a lot. I, I did a. I spent maybe an hour and a half there yesterday with Reverend McVicker. We walked the neighborhood again, just talking to people. And there's a lot of problems outside in the back laneways and the garages. It's not just in the house. So someone can leave a door open. They can walk in, or again, they can come through the sewers mm. in the basement in the older style homes. You may have seen. And. If we don't, if people like you don't get on this reasonably quickly with the way that you just described that they can procreate and exp- and spread, could people in that neighborhood be looking at a massive, massive problem in short order? They could. Um, I think we're going to have the problem under control in about 30 days. And again, it's mainly because of Don and Carol McVicker. They've been on the ball They've contacted the city. Um, I've agreed to donate a bunch of our services um, towards his ministry, then the city. So we've, they've agreed to a big mitigation plan. We're not going to do every house, but we're going to do surrounding lands. We're going to do back alleyways. We're going to do outdoor treatments um, as per what we are legislated by the Ministry Ministry of the Environment to do. We're going to follow the rules, but we're going to bait outside to get them before they get inside. Will it be a 100% solution? No, but we're hoping maybe we can knock it back by 70 or 80%. And just before I let you go, is this time of year a good time or a bad time for you to be doing this kind of work? Because my, my immediate thought is, well, if it's warm out, they'll be outside not necessarily looking for shelter in homes, so maybe you can get them outside. I'm guessing that fall and winter is a worse time for infestation. Would I be right? You know, Scott, we're actually busy with mice and rats 12 months of the year, <laughs> so it, it is, it's easier for us. I don't want to go into some of the exact streets, but we saw rat holes on about four properties yesterday because the ground is so dry when we did all of our inspections. So yeah, it's a good time to do it now. And we also mentioned we gave them a plan that's going to last for about six months. It's not a one-time job. We're going to do a big 
we'll say, um, remediation plan to mitigate the problem. We're going to go back every four weeks to check all of our outdoor stations. The outdoor stations are going to be marked and hidden away so people don't know where they are. Even if they find it, they can't access it because you have to have a special key. So we're hoping to not get rid of the problem outside. And I think that we only found out of 120 houses, we're going to be doing another 20 inside. Not everybody has them inside. Yeah, that's, uh, oh, you know what, I, I can't think of too many things that would make me more grossed out than uh, seeing, as this story describes, finding rats scurrying around inside your house and maybe in your in your stove. That's a uh, good, good thing something is happening now because uh, that's, that's all we need in Hamilton is a massive rat infestation. Uh, Jim Miner, uh, President of Action Pest Control, really appreciate you doing this today. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Scott. You take care. God bless. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson. He is here every Monday, looking very uh, summery today. Well, he's he's like the Johnny Cash version of summer: short pants, short sleeves, Burton Cummings T-shirt. Very, uh, you know, very summery. Burton Cummings is like a summer, even though it's from Winnipeg, so it should be cold. I think of him as a summer band. Well, summer concerts. Yeah. I saw him for the first, I think it was 1973 at the CNE. First time I'd ever driven a car into Toronto. Is that right? Yep. It was uh, down Highway 11 from the cottage. I was living at the cottage uh, on my own. Imagine that. The first year I lived at the cottage alone, I got a, I'll tell you a quick story. I got a summer job, local IGA. And I was working there on weekends, and I said to my dad and my mom, I'm going to ask Mr. Wilson if I can work all summer. So I went in to ask him on the 24th of May. I was working there. He said, yeah, sure. No, we we could use your help. So I thought that was great. So I packed up all my gear after school and uh, got a ride up the cottage, Lake Simcoe, uh, Innisfil, and uh, worked on the weekend. And then mom and dad started packing up their stuff to go home Sunday night that's the first time it dawned on me that I would be living alone at 15. Now, try that nowadays. Worked out okay. The job was about a mile and a quarter away, and I rode my bike every day. And nice. I did. What am I going to eat? I mean. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, see, uh, we were just, I was just, funny that you were to say this, because I was just at a funeral on the weekend, a very, a woman who I was very close with, and, um, when I was 15, my parents were going away on a trip somewhere, and in retrospect, they had the great wisdom to say, you're not staying in our house alone, because <laughs> you'll burn it to the ground. <laughs> so they shipped me off to Mark Chamberlain's place, along with her family, and uh, and uh, we've been friends with the family ever since, and she just uh, just passed away. But yeah, so your parents trusted you at 15, and it worked out. Mine didn't, and it worked out. So Well, I think the fundamental difference might be your parents liked you at 15. <laughs> No, I think pretty much they understood. That that says, spend all the time you want in the lake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's an anchor. Uh, well, there you go. So Burton Cummings Burton in 1973. Cummings. Yeah, I think uh, those were the days, though, when the X, for years, when the yeah. X would have, the exhibition would have all the concerts. I worked for the X. One, one summer I was the sports publicist for the Canadian National Exhibition, summer of 1988. And so we were able to get tickets cheap as staff to all the concerts and basically back then when the exhibition stadium still existed they had a concert every night yep and big acts oh yeah the biggest acts john cougar that summer it was john cougar it was uh steve winwood neil young 
Um, Ringo Starr and his all-star band, Charday, uh, And then the one that I, I may have told the story on the air before. If I have, I apologize. But uh, they, had the, they had the half um, stadium shows where the grandstand, yep. they would roll the stage into the middle. It was a rolling stage. Or they had the full stadium shows for the really big ones. And the one night, George Michael was in at his like at his peak he yep. was you know enormous and it was a full stadium show and i had two tickets in the sixth row or seventh row and i wasn't going to go to see george michael but there were these two girls at the back 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 part peering through a fence to try and see him and they were about my age maybe a little bit younger and i walked up and said i bet you'd like to see george michael and they were like oh yeah and i said well here you go and i handed them these two tickets and they're like these aren't real and i said and if they're not, what's the worst that happens? And if they are, you're in the sixth row. Really? And I was thinking afterwards, I was, th- again, not really keeping up. But afterwards, I was thinking, that would have been a great pickup line. <laughs> I just gave them the tickets and walked I was away. Say, I, was say, I know how I operate. I had to leverage, I had to leverage that. Yeah, I never, never dawned on me until after they were long gone. It's like, oh, shoot, I should have got a name. <laughs> I saw Willie Nelson there. Yeah, and, uh, Chris, in 1973, he would have only been 80. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, Chris Christofferson, come on for a couple songs. I was going to come on for a bunch, but it wasn't going to work out that night. <laughs> and uh, but that was the only place in Toronto where you where they could have big concerts. Well, right? I mean, where yeah. else were you going to have them? You were you, I Maple Leaf Gardens was not huge. This was this because a full stadium, you could yeah, still have forty five or fifty thousand, and if it was the half, it would have been twenty five. It was still bigger. You're right than any other place. But it was outside. Yeah, yeah, and and as I say, it was part of the X. And if you didn't, and the great thing about it was, if you didn't have tickets, the way the uh, the place was set up, anywhere around, you could hear all the music. Yeah. Anywhere around, you could hear all the music. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool back then. I drove uh, drove my six no the, the when I went to see Willie Nelson the next year. No, I was uh, anyway. I drove my '69 Cortina down there. Wow! If anybody wants to know, six yeah. Did you still have it? Yeah, <laughs> I brought it tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so I got a question for you. You have been a general manager in sports for a long, long time. At what point do you lose the benefit of the doubt with your team or with your players or with your fans? And the reason I ask this is I don't know what year we're into now of, uh, well, we could figure it out. I think it was 2017 that Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins took over the Blue Jays after the 2016 Alex Anthopoulos year. So, yeah, so we're into year six, year seven. Every year they're supposed to be great. Every year changes are coming and they're supposed to win. Right now they are in dead last in the American League East. Now I understand that's a tough division. I get that. And they're I, being first in the Central. I understand that. But they don't play in the Central. You don't play in the Central. You've got, and to, to, if you're going to win, you've got to beat the good teams. And if you can't beat the good teams, no matter what division you're in, you don't deserve to win. But at what point does someone say, yeah, you know what, you've talked a great game, but nothing's actually happened here? As soon as you lie, as soon as, as soon as you mislead them and if you, and you lose the trust of the players, you lose the trust of everybody. Now the players can get over a little quicker because they're making a few million a year. At least. But when you tell the fans, this is our year and we've built a team that can compete 
for the World Series. And last year you said you were close, and okay, maybe people will buy that, but this is going to be our year. It says two things. Either you've misled them by lying to them, and or you don't know what the hell you're talking about. So your credibility is kind of shot. The interesting thing with baseball is it's a really long season, and they're going through a rough patch, and they're calling for the manager's head. The same guy that they were happy they re-signed. So fans are demanding, and they have set the bar for themselves particularly high. They have the benefit that, if I recall correctly, Ed Rogers kind of pushed a um, uh, cigar-smoking guy that was around when they won everything. Paul Beeston. Paul Beeston out the door. And Anthopolis, who's gone on, by all accounts, to his own success. To win everywhere. Well, he went to Atlanta, and he's won nonstop. So he apparently is a pretty good general manager, and they put him put the boots to him, and seven years later they make big promises they fix up the dome, and uh, I haven't been to a game yet this year, but I hear it's pretty cool down there. And I think what they've done is they've made a good party house for the younger people to go and have a few $14 Budweiser's and not care about the game because there's enough other things to do. But anyway, they I mean, they've done a lot of things. You know, they renovated uh, the Sky Dome in six months, and... Around here, arenas take three years to renovate, but that's just another story. But on the field, all those things, I, and look, I think all those things have value, have merit. I think the, the changes to the stadium, good things. But there are two parts to this job. You could make Mark Shapiro the president of the club and say, but you don't have anything to do with players. And we need a real general manager who can do something. You know, every time, honestly, every time I hear Ross Atkins talk, it's like he's finding new ways to use many words to say nothing. <laughs> honestly, and and there is, that's fine if you've got something to stand on. To this point, what is it that they're standing on that they have the capability to treat the fans and the media and the people talking to them like that. I, I just, to me, there's, there's no, there's nothing here. You, you've got players who should be better than they are. Is that the player's fault then that they're not performing? Sure it is. But you pick those players. And at a certain point, Don, I think that, you know, you can always point to a team and say, oh, our players underperformed this year. And that absolutely happens. You've had it happen yep. to you before. Yep. But when your players underperform every single year, at some point, you got to say, well, wait a second, who's choosing these underperforming players? That speaks to my point. You've either misled the fans, right, by giving them false hope, or you don't know what you're doing. And when I talk about you don't know what you're doing, you've evaluated your players in such a manner that apparently they're not near as good as you think they are, and they don't play nearly as good as you think they should, and whose fault is that? It can't fall always to the players. If you bring a big-time player in and say, this guy's going to put us over the top, and he doesn't, you misread it. The fans didn't misread it. You misread it. Uh, Taychuk in Florida has been an absolute fabulous find, and Calgary justified that trade by picking up Florida is one of their very top players and everything else. Sam Pollock said when he ran the Montreal Canadiens, the player that gets the best player in the trade wins the trade. Florida's clearly won the play trade. So they 
assessed the situation in a far better manner. Well, so that one, that one is tough. And and I know it's a very relevant one, but that was tough because Kachuk essentially said, I am leaving to go to Florida so you can trade me there or I'm leaving at the end of my contract. I'm not re-signing. So understand to put a gun to his head. uh, In uh, in one sense, yeah, in one sense, uh, making that trade for Calgary to get anything back was impressive. But, but, but Calgary made it sound like they won the trade, or uh, they at least... Sure. Well, they had to spin it. It was a wash. Yeah, they had to spin it. I mean, the Johnny Goudreau one was even worse when he just walked out the door. Yeah. But, no, I just, I, I look at this but, team year after year, and we hear, oh, this is the year. This is the year. But you go back to spin, and if you keep spinning it, and it never comes true, then you've either misread it again, or you're being you're lying to the fans. And it's generally one or the other, and it's a matter of who's going to call you out on it. It costs Calgary's general manager his job, mm-hmm. who may now be the Toronto Maple Leafs general Could manager. Be. Isn't that great? Isn't that great how that works? You can't do the job here. We think you failed. Everybody agrees. Okay. Here's one of the top jobs in hockey as a reward. Yeah, and and the irony would be potentially. So y- the reason you were let go out of Calgary was because you had a gun put to your head. The trade that you made, which again I I don't criticize too harshly because of the situation he that he was in. Um, theoretically, Austin Matthews could say, "I'm not resigning." And you're facing almost exactly the same thing when you come here. And the first time it didn't work out so well for you, even though it was an incredibly difficult situation. So will Austin Matthews be an incredibly, if you can't re-sign Austin, if, if, um, how do you say that guy's last name? Uh, the Calgary GM. It starts with a T, Traver. Oh, um, Brad Treliving? Treliving, yeah. Yes, sorry. And, um. With that record, I'm not sure I want him with with his hand on the trigger because it did not work out well last time and cost him same scenario cost him his job and if and if Austin Matthews says I'm not re-upping and my trade kicks in like you can't even not if you don't re-sign him that's one thing not after July 1st you can't even trade him unless he agrees yeah. Yeah, and maybe, maybe if Trilliving becomes the guy, maybe you say, well, you know what, he came to us in the interview and he explained what he would have done differently and we believe that he learned something from the experience. Who knows? But it is, uh, I say, uh, the, 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 uh, the Atkins and Shapiro thing with the Jays, um, I, I just got to believe that if they don't make the playoffs with an expanded playoffs this year with what they've said if they don't make the playoffs this year, regardless of how tough the AL East is, that I think w- there would have to be a serious discussion about whether these are the guys because they have Shapiro. He's handpicked. I know Shapiro brought him, I, saying, I, I, but, "Here's the guy I'm putting yeah. in charge." But and, I'm saying both. I'm and saying, you can't find Shapiro with a search warrant when things aren't going well. He does tend to be less visible. Yeah, that's kind of human nature. I don't blame him for that. Uh, let's take a very quick break here. By the way, um, Paul and Sarah write in, um, speaking of your exhibition stadium exploits, B 
Beach Boys, Summer of 77, top row of the grandstand, left with a headache, not because of loud music, but due to the overpowering, quote, scent rising up from the seats that was trapped under the grandstand roof. Huh. I, I, um, Did they have marijuana back in the 70s? <laughs> that was, it was at that stadium that I smelled it for the first time. I, me too. John I, Cougar Mellencamp, the, the guy, I remember going, I took a girl, and the guy next to us had a doobie the size of something from a Cheech and Chong movie. <laughs> it was as wide, it was as thick as my forearm. So, so a kid from Linden, I'm not naive, I went to high, Highland High School, and, and there was um, uh, some of the students there would partake, I know. I, I, I don't and didn't. And it was a real eye opener. I'll tell you to go to the exhibition stadium because there was no drinking. No, you, 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 nobody was. Later there was, but not then. Yeah, no, no, not then. No, they didn't treat anybody like an adult. Now you can have a beer and a golf no. course if you want to, and everything else. But uh, but for that odor, and I'm going, what is that? Is there a skunk around? Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, remember the on opening day, first ever opening day for the Jays. The crowd was chanting, "We want beer." So 1977, they still didn't. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't until two or three or four years later that they, but yeah, I, that was the first time I, I'm, I'm not a uh, partaker, but that was the first time I'm standing in there and it's like, wow. For, I mean, I knew what it was. Cause again, like I'm only half exaggerating about the size of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> like This was like, uh, almost like a cartoon joint. He's got his buddy holding the other end of it up. Pretty much. It was, uh, you know, okay. I was exaggerating about the size of my forearm, but it absolutely was bigger than a cigar. <laughs> Like it was a honking thing that I'm like, how, at that time, we're not, back then we were not as open as a society is. How did you even get this in here? And how is some security guard, I mean, you could spot yeah. that thing from <laughs> the other side of the stadium. There were, I mean, it looked like, it looked like when the Stelco plant purges their, their, <laughs> their <laughs> furnace and they see all those colored Tafasco, the plumes come up. That's what, that was what it was next to us. It looked like it was a bonfire on, ongoing, which it was. But, but, you know, they didn't care as long as there wasn't rioting and there never was. I mean, you just made a rush on the chip stand. Yeah, no, it was probably the, the opposite of rioting. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably the opposite of that one. Anyway, Don Robertson is with me. He, I uh, didn't introduce him today. I, I mean, it gets to the point where I think everyone knows him, but nonetheless, he is uh, the guy behind the Dundas, the Allen Cup champion Dundas Real McCoys. He is the purveyor of Calm Choice Realty in Dundas, Ontario. He is uh, the 2014 Dundas Citizen of the Year and the leading contender for 2023. Always yeah. the leading contender. It uh, followed an Allen Cup last time, if there's any trend there. Well, it it, it absolutely should. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, and honestly, I can come up with not one other person in Dundas worthy of the award. It's basically a barren wasteland of citizens, so you should win it every year. <laughs> well, that makes me feel good. Yeah. Our, our, our listenership in Dundas just went through the roof. <laughs> um, no, there's lots of good people in Dundas. Too uh, late. Yeah, too late. So um, you mentioned in the last segment about, uh, about Austin Matthews. If you were the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, knowing what Austin Matthews is going to cost, probably 14 or $15 million a year, which will make him the highest paid player in the league, knowing his lack of success in the playoffs, and knowing that, well, and suspecting that he might not sign a contract 
before he becomes in control of his destiny with a no-trade clause on July the 1st. But also recognizing that in the regular season anyway, he is one of the absolutely best players in the world. Would you trade him? No. No? you take your chances? I'd sign him. What if he didn't sign before July 1st? I'd trade him. <laughs> okay, there you go. I'd sign him. I'd give him his $14 million. If he's due $14 million, I'd I'd do it because there are only so many players like that on the planet. And the best way to get the biggest bang for the buck for Austin Matthews is surround him with the right players. I don't believe his supporting cast suit his style. You need uh, Marty McSorley or a Dave Semenko, um God bless him. He's passed. But Zach Hyman. You, I would have, I've said that 15 times when asked over the last two weeks. Not paying Zach Hyman will come back and they'll rue the day they let him go because they couldn't afford him. And it turns out they really couldn't afford not to have Zach Hyman. That was, in my estimation, an error. Big, strong, tough, hard on the puck. So I keep Matthews. And I would peddle somebody else to bring in the right type of supporting cast. And Kyle Dubas and I would not be running the Toronto Maple Leafs the same way. Neither one of us are going to this year. But I think he's still time. They're still doing interviews, Don. I, I, I don't want to say nothing. I've had a couple calls. Um, but, I mean, you need to surround your superstars with the right kind of players. And if you're not prepared to do that, don't have these superstars. He is not going to hit anybody, but he will play in traffic. And he will play in more traffic if he's got a big heavy winger or two around. Like Hyman would be perfect, and then you find another guy that's got enough skill to play with him, and I'm telling you, they can do a lot of damage. Willie Nylander is as tough as you. Yeah. No, I, I, my, your comment though, that if, you know, I would give him his 14 or 15 million, I, I would be loath to trade him. But at the same time, if I were to speak to his agent and say, what does he want? And his agent said 15 million, if that's whatever the cap is, because the NHL, the NHL salary cap has, the NHL has a salary cap and your top play was your 20%. It's 20%. You can't have any player making more than 20%. So whatever that works out to with the salary cap this year. But if he comes in and asks for every penny in that 20%, I would have real questions. I would, at that point, I would seriously, because at that point you've looked around the league and you've seen Sidney Crosby playing for 8.7 million, way below market value. I'm not saying you go way below. But if you want to win after all these years, if you've played for seven years in the league now and had seven miserable seasons, or is it eight years now, whatever it is, and it's been miserable in the playoffs every time, I would want my player to say, at least take a couple million and put it towards the team so we can get other guys, as opposed to all of it landing in my lap. If he were to come in and demand every dime, I, I think that signifies... Someone who, uh, I truly do, who's not really all that interested in winning. Look, I buy into your theory. I take my hat off to Sidney Crosby, who's the ultimate team captain, the ultimate player. But Sidney Crosby is from a different era. Oddly enough, Sidney Crosby is from a different era. 
Austin Matthews doesn't care about that. He wants to make, and Austin Matthews doesn't have to work another day in his life. But I'm not saying Austin Matthews should take 8.7 million when he could make double that. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying you can be a guy still making 13 million and be the highest paid player in the league. And you pass on the extra couple of million to say, I want better guys around me. I'm not asking, I'm not saying he should be a, a pauper here. But I just, if you come in and you insist on every dime of that 20%, to me, that sends the wrong message right off the bat. It, it might, but I don't see uh, John Tavares making 11 million, who's worth six, offering to give anything back. And he's the team captain. But he can't, though. You can, you, he can't go in and renegotiate his contract? You, the NHL contracts, what you're negotiated at is your salary cap. He could renegotiate it, but that doesn't help the salary cap. It, it, if it's a poor team... Presumably, I guess you could renegotiate and the team for actual money, but I don't believe you can in the NHL. It's not like the NFL. I don't believe in the NHL you can renegotiate your contract down and spread it out or anything like that. I don't uh, think so. Well, I'm not going to get the leap job because I thought you could do that. I'd bring him in. He's got two years left. I, I'd say we're going to give you another three years and we're going to renegotiate it and you're going to play on for an average of seven or six and you don't even have to play the last two years. We'll just eat it but it's going to drop it down and make it more palatable. He's the captain. So if your captain won't do it, how do you dump on Austin Matthews if he won't do it either? Well, I get what you're saying, and I would hold my nose, but I'm telling you, those talents are few and far between in this league. He scored 60 goals, and he was the MVP, and I think his failure in the playoffs is because he's not surrounded by the right people which is one of the reasons it doesn't bother me that Dubas is gone. The problem is they're not going to hire me to fix it. Uh, NHL, by the way, explicitly prohibited per the CBA to renegotiate a contract. You can extend a person and add more years, but not at the renegotiating. You just have to add it to it. So once you're, once you're in, you could buy him out. But again, that's going to have an impact on you. I just what's the, what's the hit on the salary cap if you buy him out? I like he's a you. useful player. Yeah, and, and like he's not he's not a bad hockey player. But when you put it in the perspective of why should Austin Matthew get the most, and you and I say well, their captain's getting eleven million. He's no more an eleven million dollar player than Austin Matthews is a fourteen and a half nope, million dollar nope, player. I. I Again, uh, you look at the teams, somebody had a, um, a graph that was put out at the beginning of the playoffs. And I think if I remember it right, it said there has never been a $10 million or more player win a Stanley Cup. And they listed all the $10 million players and not one of them has won a Stanley Cup. And only I think two had ever been to a finals while they were being paid that, that amount of money because you're just tying up so much of the money in one player and, and hockey is, is such a team sport that imagine you pay Austin Matthews the 20%, the full 20% that he could potentially get. And on week one of the season, he stops a puck with his hand and he's out for eight weeks or 10 weeks or right before the playoffs. You're screwed. Well, you better get ready for that to happen because it's going to happen at some point. And I'm going to go back to Dubas. <clears throat> Pardon me. Dubas is the one that wrote that contract, and it could have been longer. He bet on winning and Matthews wanting to stay. Like he, 
that contract should have been another two years longer. Yes. As far as I'm concerned. Yes. But he said, I'm so good, you're going to win a Stanley Cup here and you're going to want to come back. Now, the significance of Sidney Crosby's 8.7 is on his back. Yeah, of course. That's why that's where that number comes sure. from. And but he did take a hometown discount. It was a lot of money at the time he signed it. It's a very small amount of money, relatively speaking, now. Well, he's 35 years old. Oh, I know. No, no. Now, I, he should have been making 10 or 11 during that period. But again, he's not going broke. Austin Matthews doesn't have to work another day okay, in his life. Okay, let me ask you one question. And we got to take a break here. Let me ask you one question. If you went to Austin Matthews and said, we can pay you $15 million or we can pay you $13 million and guarantee you that you will carry the Stanley Cup around, what do you think you would do? He'd never believe you. Okay, I, I'm saying, I'm, I'm playing the game that you can, you have the gift of foresight and you can say, I guarantee you, I absolutely, I've, I've seen the future. I went into the DeLorean and I saw the future. And if you take 13 so we can buy someone else, I guarantee you that you will hoist the Stanley Cup or you can take 15 and not. What do you think you would do? Take 13. See, I think you would too. 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 He wouldn't have Ross Atkins said it to him. Maybe not. But circle I, back. But you, but you also don't have a salary cap in baseball. I mean, what's Austin Matthews worth if there's no salary cap? Well, Rick Vibe and I had that con- conversation with when uh, what's Connor McDavid M- worth? Matt Sundin was getting nine million and had never scored fifty. Vibe did it three years in a row. Yeah, well, made two hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars a year. That was decades ago. What's Connor McDavid getting paid this year coming up if there's no salary cap in the NHL? Twenty million dollars, at least. Yeah. At least. Now it has to be financial. It has to work financially, which is why there's a salary cap, so the Edmonton Oilers and the Winnipeg Jets can compete. Because if it's wide open and Illich is still alive, and perhaps his family would throw the money around like they did before, and the New York Rangers and the Toronto Maple Leafs, I'm I, I haven't seen the Toronto Maple Leafs books as you would expect. The Toronto Maple Leafs likely make an extra. $30 million a year because of the salary cap. Sure. If, if there was no salary cap, within two years, Austin Matthews would be playing on a line with Connor McDavid. Yes. Uh, they, they would. Because yep. somebody's going to want to win a Stanley Cup. Now, riddle me this because you're an old goaler. Why are goalies so poorly pl- paid when they play such a significant role in the Stanley Cup playoffs? Look at Bob in Florida. Well, he's getting paid ten million bucks. He'll be the first one to win a. He'll be the first ten million dollar guy to win. I, I guess Kachuk, I think, is making that much too. Maybe he's just under. I'm not sure, but um, it's because, and I can't explain this. There was a time when the great, and maybe it's because there were so few of them, when the great goalies were the great goalies for an extended period of time. Bernie Perrant. My my old my childhood yeah. hero, Bernie Perrant was great for years. Was the Conn Smythe Trophy back to back years the Flyers won a decade? Ken Dryden, Jerry Cheevers, Carey Price, Carey Price. But go and, and Vasilevsky in the last few years, Patrick Waugh. But other than Vasilevsky, who in the last number of years do you look at and say that guy was the star en route to a Stanley Cup and remained the star playing at that level? 
for the next two or three or four years. Almost everyone, Vasilevsky being the exception in recent years with Tampa Bay, almost all the other ones got crazy hot en route to the Stanley Cup and then came back to earth the next year and were never that guy again. Steve Penny. Well, Montreal, there's your, Montreal there's a, Canadians. There's a classic example of it. And yeah, I mean, it's been a long time. And so it, it's so risky to to put your money in a goalie who, like Bobrovsky, who is out of his mind right now, earning every dime of it, but for three years has been an absolute bum. All of a sudden he's found it and it's great, but he was, he was a bum. 0-3 against Boston. And the only team to beat him since is Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Don, I wanted to, uh, we short on time because we got going on other stuff, but I came across the greatest sporting event in the world, I have decided. ESPN Today has written about the growing world of the Texas high school barbecuing state championship. They now have, high schools now have barbecue teams. To compete in Texas Barbecue Championship. I, if I had known this when I was in high school, I would have hitchhiked my way down to El Paso or wherever the heck just to be part of the barbecue team. The the, the Camp 31 sponsored one will be the one that wins, I'm sure. Oh man, this is, uh, this is. So they're calling it a sport though. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that they have barbecuing teams in Texas or Alabama. No. That's of no, no surprise it, to it, me. It surprised me they have teams. It doesn't surprise me they have tons of barbecues. The fact that they've made this into a high school sport kind of does. Well, cheerleading's a sport now. Yeah. So why would barbecuing in itself be a... When my son was in elementary school, and I'm not going to mention because I don't want to embarrass the teacher who came up with this, but there was every year in Hamilton, there was the city checkers championship. And his school tended to do very well. They practiced and they had practices all the time. And they did very well. And they often won this checkers championship and they would get a banner. And I just, I always thought it was fun that the teacher who was in charge wanted them hung in the gym next to the other banners because they were the checkers athletes. And I was like, okay, that's not how I would have described it, but okay, checkers athletes. And did they? Oh yeah. Oh, I think they were eventually hung up in there, but I just thought that was a interesting description. The checkers athletes. I don't know that they did calisthenics or aerobics before to train, but m- maybe I was, I, you know, I wasn't there for practices. Maybe they did. I, I forgot to ask. Your son's very physically fit. So he would have been an athlete. He, he was an athlete. Played uh, hockey still ball, is an athlete. plays checkers. Yeah. You know what? He can, uh, he can do it all. Beat his dad at golf. Hit a fastball and move and king it up. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's the sign of a real athlete when you can, when you can king your piece. <laughs> I guess. Thank you for doing this, as always. It was fun. We missed a couple of weeks, so it's good to be back. It is good to be back. It is good to be back. I feel like that's the, uh, wasn't that the scene from uh, the very first um, Mel Brooks and the History of the World Part 1? It's good to be the king. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's good to be back. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.